Okay, so here we go. Um, question, truthful question. I'm feeling real confident about this question. Who knew that God parted the waters twice? First time in Red Sea, second time Jordan River. Who actually knew that before you studied that this week? Liar. David Shellen, you're a liar. I don't believe it. <laughs> Good. I saw one hand, two hands, three and a half, maybe. Okay, guys, a a truthful story. I think I really did. Natalie Vaughn confirms I think I actually did study Joshua precepts. I mean, that's serious studying of Joshua. And I've read it multiple times and I totally forgot. I totally forgot. Even like I go back to it every time and I'm like, really? Again, we never talked about that. It just did not make the Sunday school circuit when I was growing up. Um, We talked about that this morning and Jericho must have been too exciting. They were like, "Ah, who cares? Walls are getting ready to come down. Um, But it's pretty incredible. Um, Last time I got to talk about, stand up here and talk to you guys, I got to talk talk about the incredible apostleship of Paul. Um, If y'all remember that back in Galatians, if you don't know about that, God took, Paul over into the wilderness. It's a super quick little nugget there in Galatians. Um, And he made him an apostle, which means you were taught by God. It's pretty cool. So you can go and find it, Um, but you might miss it because it's really tiny. And this time I get to talk about parting of the waters part two. And so that's pretty exciting to be able to talk about God's mighty acts. Uh, The first thing we're going to do is order the events of this story. Um, Because it was written for dramatic effect and emphasis, and so you might have gotten a little tangled up. And I'm going to order it for you as I understand it, based on my study and based on what I've read, and you may have trouble with it. It's fine. It's fine if you have trouble with it. Let's keep going. Um, But it doesn't get old because it's pretty unbelievable. And the first thing that happened at the beginning of chapter three is Joshua led the people from Shittim to the bank of the Jordan River. Thank you, Sandy. She gave me the proper enunciation of that. Thank you. Um, Number two, the second thing that happened after three days, the officers went through the people and they told them, hey, we're going to follow that ark. And if you have any trouble with the distance that God um, gave them, let's just leave it at, you know, God said to keep a distance um, because they didn't know where they were going. Um, And they probably gave him a good view of what he was going to do. And so he said, stay back. Um, The third thing that happened is Joshua says to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The fourth thing that happens is Joshua says to the priests, it's time, take up that ark. Fifth, God said to Joshua, today I will exalt you. Sixth, Joshua says to the tribes, take 12 men and have them get some stones and they're gonna carry them out of the river. And the seventh thing that happens, the priests take up the ark. And they head to the Jordan River. And as soon as they touched the water or they stepped down into the riverbank, the water stopped flowing. The next thing that happens, we know that the waters stood very far away and rose up. And we know what that looks like in Germantown, Tennessee this year, don't we? When they rise up in a heap. Mm -hmm. Nine, the priests stood in the middle of the Jordan River on dry ground. Number 10, those 12 men grabbed probably a pretty big stone on their shoulder on dry ground. And 11, the people passed quickly through the riverbed on dry ground. 12, Joshua made a heap of stones in the middle right where the priests were standing on 
dry ground. Um, Number 13, the priests brought the ark out of the Jordan River on dry ground. That's right. And then 14, the waters began flowing and overflowing its banks. And they made that clear. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just a little Jordan River. It was full-time Jordan River. Everything was flooded. 15, Joshua used those stones to build a memorial um, uh, to the Lord at Gilgal. And the last thing that we know that happened in the middle of all of that, God did exalt Joshua and made it clear, this is your leader. This is the one I'm speaking to. This is the one that hears my voice. This is the one that I am leading. He did it for Joshua just as he had done for Moses. And this is truly a miracle of the Lord. By any chance, did anyone memorize your memory verses for the week? Did you know you had memory verses? (laughs) I'll just be real honest. I pretty pretty much go, oh, yeah, and skip down to the next thing. But why don't you look at those memory verses? You can look at it um, in your pages. It's Joshua 4, 23 through 24, and I'm going to read them out loud for you. So let's look at those. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Last week, I asked the leaders to think of something that the Lord had done in their lives that gave them confidence in what he would do in the future. And I know a few of your leaders were planning to do that with you guys today, and maybe you had that experience and, um, and that it was profitable for you. I hope that it was. Um, we remember last week that Rahab had heard about the mighty things of the Lord, and she believed it was how she became a part of the household of faith, or her household became a part of the saving faith of God's people. And I wonder if you've had that experience. Have you done that? When you read about the stones at Gilgal, did you think about something God had done in your life that was mighty and continues to give you confidence in the certain work of your future? Uh, Recently, a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with Natalie Vaughn's daughter, Jen Straka. She has a situation in her life which causes her uh, quite a disturbance. It affects her peace. And the story she relayed to me included these words. They are not her own words. They're the words of someone else. But the woman said to her, it was just too hard. So I blank. And I'm not at liberty to share the story with you, but it grieved me and it kind of sticks to my insides. And it made me think about the times in my life when I have said, It's just too hard. And today, you are going to get um, a very personal story of Kim Killebrew's life. Um, And I'm going to share some experiences that I have had where I've thought it's just too hard. And the first one is this year. This year, I sent my oldest child to college. I took him to New York on July 1st, which is earlier than most college students, to a military school where I would not have communication with him for several weeks and very limited communication with him for six. And I'm not much of a crier, um, but there were a lot of tears shed leading up to the dropping off. 
And at one point, I remember saying out loud, God, it's just too hard. How can you ask a mother to release her son to so much unknown? And the hardest moment came on that day, July 1st, and I knew they were coming. We're sitting in an auditorium, and this beautiful cadet at the front of the stage um, is just rolling through her speech to the um, parents, and I know they're coming, and I know they're coming. And she says, finally, you have 60 seconds to say goodbye to your new cadet. And I already had a dagger in my heart, and it just twisted, and the tears started flowing, and I watched my son walk over and out behind a curtain to who knows what for that day. But I can say to you today that the Lord is my strength, and I confidently say he has brought me to the other side where there is peace and joy. And I join millions of other mothers of college-age children who have been through an experience like me and who are like you, who have done it or will do it or, and can say that God is good. But the FaceTime photos of my son's bald head serve as the memorial to the truth that we can entrust our children to the Lord. Let's go back another 10 years. In May of 2008, my husband and I began the adoption process of our fourth child. And Thanksgiving weekend of 2009, when we were expecting to travel to Ethiopia at any moment to go get Ben, we got a call saying that our paperwork was wrong. Um, 18 months worth of work needed to be changed and updated due to a tiny formality. We had been approved for a child up to the age of three, and Ben was three years and nine months old. And Ken and I looked at each other. We were in the middle of Target in Clarksville, Tennessee, and all I wanted to do was go to bed. And we thought, okay, let's go. And we went home, and we got to work. (sighs) And we saw the Lord do a mighty work, and I still consider it a miracle. I saw the Lord move government agencies and process our paperwork so quickly that we traveled and were home by December 11th. And my tall, handsome, quiet Ben is another memorial to the fact that God can build a family in the midst of powerful opposition. Let's go even further back, almost 10 more years. In 2001, I was a new mother of a baby that did not wanna sleep through the night, regardless of all the rules and schedules I followed. And I was a maniac without sleep, and I let everyone know it. (laughs) I thought it was too hard to get up multiple times every night and keep going. Believe it or not, Sam now sleeps through the night, (laughs) albeit in New York. Um, And we eventually added other children, and, um, and we made it. But it took me a long time, probably Sam was about nine, before I stopped complaining of the demands of motherhood. But my sleeping children are a memorial to the fact that the Lord strengthened me and took me from total brat to capable woman. If God can hold back the Jordan River with his hand, he can help me make it through sleepless nights of an infant baby. If God can hold back the Jordan River with his hand, he can give me the strength to stand up to government agencies that feed on technicalities. If God can hold back the Jordan River with his hand, he can dry my tears as I hug my son goodbye in Highland Falls, New York. 
If God can hold back the Jordan River with his hand, he will prepare me for the day when I kiss him goodbye for his first deployment, whether it is in peacetime or war. And I know so many of you, I know you well, and I know you have experienced great pain. I know that sending a a child to college is peanuts compared to what many of you have experienced. There are other memorials in my life, I promise, more painful ones than the ones I've told you about. These are just a few. But following this sequence, I can see how the memorials of my early mothering years strengthened me for the two hard moments of this year. And because the Lord has opened my eyes, I can praise him for all the good work he has done. I do not thank providence or coincidence or congratulate, congratulate myself on a job well done. It is God alone who has done these big and precious things in my life. And because of what he has done, I know he will continue them for the rest of my days. But I want to take you a step farther And I'm spoiling, I'm just telling you right now, I'm spoiling the rest of the Old Testament for you right here. The Israelites did not reach the other side of the river in the promised land and live happily ever after. We know that's quite the contrary. We are, after all, only in the sixth book of the Bible. There is much more to their story. They got to the promised land, and that is really where the real mess began. You see, There was more work that the Lord had to do. His original plan from the beginning of time was to save a people for himself, and he was always going to do it through Jesus Christ. The Israelites crossed the Jordan River expecting salvation, and in a way, they received it. God heaped abundant blessings upon them in land and inheritance, But they forgot the commandments of the Lord and began to walk in a way that seemed right to them. While the miraculous crossing of the river was a symbolic completion of the work he had begun back in Exodus, it was in reality still the beginning of the story. It would be hundreds of years later until Jesus would declare it to be finished. And many Israelites never realized that the real work had to be done from the inside out. This story of Joshua and the Jordan River should remind us of another man by the Jordan River. And I want you to open your Bibles with me, turn on your phones, and turn to John 1. And let's read it together. I'm going to give you a second to find it. All right, hopefully you found John 1. And we're going to begin in verse 19. All right, I'm going to read it aloud so y'all follow along. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to, I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some 1,400 years later, after we left those Israelites by the Jordan River, we are back to the Jordan River. And this is the great introduction to Jesus Christ. This is where all of Scripture comes together. John the Baptist stands on the side of the Jordan and proclaims a new kind of salvation. Not a salvation from Pharaoh or the wilderness or raging waters. He doesn't even proclaim a salvation from the Romans who were now in control over the Jews in the Promised Land. No, he proclaims what they really needed and what we need today, a salvation from sin. The Promised Land was wonderful. It was a great gift from the Lord, but they didn't do it right. They didn't obey. And the great gift became the great idol, an idol that ruled them and destroyed them because they had not been saved from what really plagued them. And it was the sin within the darkness of their own hearts. They needed a salvation from sin and the son of God, Jesus, was the only one who could do that. And that is what he has begun and is continuing to do in our lives. I believe that most of us are here studying God's word today because we know that Jesus saves. But what have we been saved from? And what have we been saved for? Were we saved from the oppression of other people or the sin of other people and saved to a promised land of heaven? How often do we think that? How often do we long for heaven when we brush up against the sin of others? That's not right. Or at least that's not the full picture. It's only a part. We've been saved from sin, our sin, and saved for an obedient life. You see, sin is what kept the Israelites from enjoying the promised land because they couldn't fully obey God. He had given them instructions, and if they had been followed, they could have lived in the land in abundant blessing forever. But it was too hard for them. Is it too hard for us? Back in the spring, we studied James, and James did a number on me. At the same time, I took a small group through the book, The Enemy Within, um, which is a book about sin. And it was a providentially a painful period of time, I must say. During this study, I'm not sure when or at what particular passage God used, uh, but I began to feel a tugging at my heart. I began to hear a whisper in my ear, and it was a deep conviction of sin. And I'm ashamed to say that it was the sin of anger. I can still remember myself lying in bed and saying, no, <laughs> no way. No, God, I'm not that person. There is no way that's true of me. Anger? But everybody thinks I'm nice. <laughs> or at least most everyone, right? 
But the Lord, who was faithful and persistent, would not let me rest. He had caught my attention. And he began to open my eyes to the clear evidence that convicted me. The Holy Spirit inside me was moving. At some point, my denial became confession. My heart began to speak words like, God, I am an angry person, but I don't want to be. God, this anger in my heart is the sin that sent you to the cross. God, how can I deny this and keep sinning? Oh God, how can I not be angry anymore? For several weeks, God closed my mouth and left me in a solemn place of unknown. And I will not describe it as depression, but as a place of realization again of how dark and wicked the potential of my heart actually was. You see, I was not an overly expressive, angry person. I really don't even think my husband would describe me that way. But I was easily irritated. I questioned others. I often thought I deserved better things or better treatment or more recognition. This sin of anger and many others stood in the way of the enjoyment of my own promised land, which is this saved life in Christ. I found I was spending time and energy hiding my sin, which was keeping me from hearing the voice of the Lord, which in turn was keeping me on a path that seemed right in my own eyes. With this conviction, he led me further into a life of repentance. And at first it was scary. But there is nothing to fear but God himself. And if he was leading, he was trustworthy to follow. It's just like Joshua leading the Israelites into the river. They consecrated themselves and he showed them the wonders of his hand. Repentance has opened my eyes to the wonders of his hand in my heart. It is too hard for me alone. I cannot, in my own power, judge my sin, die for my sin, cover my sin, and change my heart. God has done it all for me. He sent his son to live that perfect life, to judge the intentions of my heart, to die in my place, wash away my sin, and begin the good work of changing my heart. I don't know the exact date of when he started this good work in me, from the beginning of time. Ironically, though, I turned 45 a month ago, and I have had knowledge of God's work in my life for 40 years. I don't know when he will complete this work in me, but I do know that he will. If Jesus can die in my place, the chief of sinners, then he can take away my anger and make me a woman of grace. If Jesus can die in my place, the chief of sinners, then he can take away my greed and replace it with generosity. If Jesus can die in my place, the chief of sinners, then he can take away my envy and replace it with gratitude. What did I really think I was saved from? What have you been saved from? Come with me, follow Jesus into a life of repentance. Ask him to show you what sin is keeping you from hearing his voice and walking into newness of life. There is nothing to fear. I accept that I was born an angry woman, a greedy woman, a prideful woman, an envious woman, 
and so on and so on. God, I admit it. Help me and save me from myself. Help me to remember. I will walk today in obedience and hope that you will transform me and that Christ will truly be evident in me. There will be more evidence to come. But as I step out in faith, I know that I am stepping out onto dry ground. Because while many things are too hard for me, nothing is too hard for him to do in me. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, I hope and pray that these words will be profitable, that you alone will be glorified. Lord, we are women that were born into sin, but you have begun a good work in us and you will complete it. Help us to walk out in faith and confidence of what Jesus Christ has done and will do in the future. Lord, help us to hear your voice. Help us to block out anything that will keep us from hearing your voice. Help us not to be afraid, but to be strong and courageous and to follow you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray all of these things. Amen.